Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. This is God's word. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, uh, we come to this amazing passage of scripture, one that we could unpack for weeks on end and still not exhausted. And we want to to take away even just a, a, a snapshot of one particular issue as we think about the sufferings that Jesus Christ endured during his incarnate ministry before his death, before his resurrection and the humility he experienced, the suffering he experienced during that time. Help us to see the value of this for our salvation, but also what it might tell us about how else we need to understand the world as you created it. That in all things we might understand what the cross has to say about life in this age as you made the universe, and as you made us as your image bearers. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, they are significant. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. One of the common, I guess sort of objections, questions, that that Christians tend to face in conversations with unbelievers, the kind of apologetic issue, if you could. The question is, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Why would he do that if he's so loving? And although we we certainly have to keep a, a clear focus on God's love, and how his mercy is truly available to sinners, there actually is a, 
another fundamental question tied up in that whole issue. Namely, the question that's forgotten is, how could a just, righteous, and holy God let sinful people into heaven? That's actually the bigger problem, and one that we might easily overlook. I should hope, uh, although my confidence does wane at times in our age, that that people in general would, would recognize the unjust travesty of a judge who acquits everyone, despite having unequivocal proof that they are all guilty. We know that Justice requires the enforcement of righteousness. Justice ought to be part of human life. And we ought to have a real sense of its goodness and necessity. We also know that means that consequences occur upon Breaches of justice. And that has to factor in to how God relates to us as his creatures. Especially considering that that we as human beings are the creatures made in his image. Crafted in such a way that we are meant to reflect his goodness into creation meant to demonstrate at a creaturely level what his unending infinite righteousness is like. In working through the Apostles' Creed, we are in the section about believing in Jesus Christ and summarizing his work as Savior. Last time, we, we thought about the virgin birth and why Christ came to live in our nature from birth. He started at the beginning uh, like we do, in a sense. Namely, um, we, we wanted to see that these standards of justice which God built into the world, that we've already been talking about, required us to live a truly righteous life, fulfilling the law in a, in a positive way, performing Righteousness And Christ had to live a human life from the beginning to render that active obedience. And now, we come to these lines about Christ's suffering. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified. He died. And was buried. And these sufferings comprise what we compose, what we tend to call Christ's ministry of humiliation, as he bore the burdens of the penalty that belongs to our sin. And Westminster Shorter Catechism 27 outlines this concept, this, that Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried, 
and continuing under the power of death for a time. There is then a a sense that his humiliation, in a sense, encompassed his experience of all that it means to be human. Which is a humiliation only because he's God, right? To become like us. Especially enduring the facets of this world as it is affected by sin. Now certainly the, the next line of the creed that, that Christ uh, descended into hell is, is included in his humiliation. Uh, but I imagine that phrase needs some further explanation. <laughs> and, and so we're going to devote next week to, to that rather than just sort of packing it in here, although a lot of our comments will apply to, in, a, in a value sense to, to what we say there. Here, here in these phrases, we see the more basic premise that Christ suffered the penalty for sin for his people. And this suffering on our account has traditionally been called his passive obedience. So we've seen last week his active Obedience, positively fulfilling the requirements of the law. And now we're talking about his passive obedience, enduring the penalty of a broken law. Passive, I, yeah, I, I kind of feel the, the need to explain that. Um, passion comes from an old word that means suffering. So it's not that he was inactive in this. It just means it was his obedience of suffering. That's so... The main point tonight is that to forgive sin, Christ suffered the consequences we should have endured for our sin. So to forgive us, Christ suffered the consequences we should have endured for our sin. And our three points are standards, sin, and satisfaction. So let's think first about standards. And I want to, especially given our kind of opening question and the thoughts that I was trying to raise there that that plug us into concerns as we interact with the wider world that may not accept all the premises of our values, especially they may not accept that God's word says so. And so how do we engage in in a wider way to explain, well, why does Christ have to die? Did he have to die? What's this whole forgiveness of sins thing about? And and I want to reflect for just this point on, on something kind of philosophical that doesn't mean complicated. That doesn't mean overly complicated. We're not going to throw lots of jargon out there but kind of philosophical that I think will help us get to this issue of justice. And I'm not trying to be abstract here, but I want to try to help us see an issue that very much shapes the cultural outlook and and presents a challenge to us in terms of explaining the gospel and explaining our relationship with God to the wider world, especially concerning our need for salvation. 
And that is that our modern world has lost our sense of realism. Now, now sometimes we talk about realism in in the spectrum of, uh, you know, how much do you dream about things? Well, I'm I'm a realist. Or, Or we talk about it in the spectrum of, positivity and, and negativity, right? We have, we have optimist, pessimist, and then pessimists who don't want to sound like pessimists, and so they call themselves realists. Um, that's, that's where I fit. Uh, we need to recover a deeper... That's not, that's not the kind of thing we're, we're thinking about. We need a deeper sense of realism because Christians have... A true opportunity to have a profound grasp of the way that the world is, but a, but a way that is, or perhaps is being, or perhaps has been lost. The thing is, God created the world with true principles that undergird the way it works and the way that it ought to work. There is a, a reality that inheres in creation itself that, that cannot be erased. And, and that's where justice comes in. And on the other hand, today, in the modern era, we have a real anti-realism. Now let's, let's think close to home that we so, sometimes, this is just to illustrate, and, and get us down the road a little bit. So, if we think close to home, sometimes we refer to people being nominal Christians. Right? And, and what we mean by nominal Christian is that they have taken the name or the label Christian, but they lack the corresponding reality. Right? They lack the corresponding reality of truly belonging to Christ by faith. So they've adopted a label without a reality. In that situation, there's there's not a reality behind the name. And so that is kind of an outlook of nominalism. You can name it something without the reality being there. Nominalism. And the thing is, that outlook has spread like wildfire through modern society applied to everything. Namely, as people pretend that we can invent reality through word games. This is where we get the the, the claims about like constructing the truth by names that we assigned to things. You have your truth. I have my truth. And we assign names to things rather than understanding the true, the real truth by recognizing what is real in creation. Now the thing is, I don't like to go here a lot, but I think that this is where this is most pointedly helpful, is, is that we see this really pointedly at work in some of our most controversial issues of the day. And, and we're going to talk about it because 
I think getting to grips with this idea of nominalism rather than realism helps you see some operating assumptions that are at work against what we believe, right? I mean, this is at work in things like gender identity. People have started talking about how gender is assigned at birth because supposedly it's just a name, right? Nothing, uh, Nothing about that sort of statement is helpful because in reality, we recognize biological sex at birth. We don't assign a gender category. We're not putting a label on a person to construct reality. We're assessing what's there. And the same nominalist problem stands behind why people claim that, well, then later someone can relabel themselves a different gender than what accords to their biological sex. The modern outlook thinks, I mean, that's kind of just the the sort of tip of the spear, right? And it runs so much more deeply than just those kind of low-hanging fruits that are easy to point out. The modern outlook thinks that life and morality is about word games, not about recognizing what is true. And that same problem, to get us back to our original and main point, That same problem occurs in the standards of justice. Not just the the biological and identity debates. Although the the prevailing practice of abortion is murder, one popular notion is to label it health care. Because we can give it a nice name. And that makes it okay. In a host of ways, we are witness To why Isaiah the prophet spoke, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We can take comfort in all of this because I I realize that these are some uncomfortable, uh, evocative topics. But one of the things that as we reckon with what Isaiah says there that there's woe for people who call evil good and good evil, is that we ought to take comfort in how the principal problems of the nominalist outlook have been with us for a long time. Because Isaiah talked about it. it. They may find new expressions in our day, and that creates a new set of problems, But the underlying issue is something that has been with God's people for a very long time. And we're still here by God's grace. And so all of the fears that sort of rush to the top of how are we going to make it through this particular cultural problem, because it's been a cultural problem for millennia. And God has preserved his people. And this discussion's payoff, to to tie this right down to the bottom, is that God created the world with real standards of righteousness. Now, how does this work out, right? The the Ten Commandments, as a summary 
It's not an exhaustive list. It's a summary of God's moral law are not arbitrary rules. He didn't just roll the dice, so to speak, about should my image bearers lie or not. No, there's an underlying reality that, that governs that because the Ten Commandments, the summary of the moral law, are a description of God's own character. We're not supposed to murder because God is life in himself. That's a reality that then transposes to us of why we're supposed to conduct ourselves a certain way. We don't lie because God is truth. Right? We don't covet because God is abundant and generous in his own character. The commandments have something grounded in who God himself is. And we bear his image. And so these things are a summary of what it's supposed to look like to reflect God at the creaturely level. And so there is a realism, a reality behind what is good in terms of justice and our conduct because creaturely righteousness is supposed to be. I mean, I guess creaturely righteousness is a reflection of God's own righteousness. And we're supposed to conduct ourselves in such a way as to demonstrate that righteousness. God made the world so that his own character then stands behind the truths of justice. They're not just social constructs. And that's why it's so problematic for wickedness to go unpunished. Justice is that God's own character must be upheld and enforced among his image bearers. And he must enforce it among his, in, in, in his relation to his image bearers. And so there are standards grounded in God himself concerning right and wrong. And that brings us to our second point. Sin. Sin. The whole first point was, in a sense, a preface to what we need to see in our passage from Romans. And so I hope that we we sort of see the value of that in, in thinking through how we relate to the way the wider world thinks, but now we come to more familiar terms with what Paul has to say. We may need some context uh, that the the preceding stretch of Romans, beginning all the way back in chapter 1, was about how sinners cannot be right with God by our works. And he summarized the the whole point he had been making from early on in this book in in chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's tying up everything he'd said so far. That's my main idea for you, readers of Romans. And so then in verse 21, he begins describing the solution to the problem that he's just outlined. 
to the problem of our condemnation. And the fix for our unrighteousness is shockingly God's own righteousness. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so here we see that Paul is in a sense building a tension that he's about to resolve. But in that God's righteousness is the solution to our sin inasmuch as salvation now comes apart from the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. How does that help us with the righteousness question though? I mean, what he's saying is that we are justified. We're declared, we get as sinners get declared righteous in God's sight by believing in Jesus apart from our works, the things that ought to be what gets measured in the divine courtroom. And so we cannot be right, because we're sinners, we can't be righteous in God's sight by our works. We've sort of disabled, dismantled that pathway into the new creation. Sin blocks the road entirely, destroys the road to everlasting life by our works. And that brings us back to our opening anecdote. Okay, so somehow God's righteousness rescues us by faith rather than by our works, but we come back to that issue that good judges don't acquit the unrighteous. So how does this help? <laughs> that, that then raises the issue of how, how can God be righteous and demonstrate His righteousness by giving salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. So, I mean, to flip Paul's statements, how in the world can God be the just and the justifier of sinners? And that's the problem that he's trying to reckon with here. And, and so he continued explaining what he means by the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this, the setting forth of Jesus Christ to bear the penalty for our sin, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God Himself, God Himself was concerned about this issue of justice. The one that's right in front of us. Because God is truly and purely 
righteous by nature, his immutable character will not allow him to wave off sin as if it doesn't matter. He cannot, I mean, despite the kind of suggestion of God can do whatever he wants and just decide to forgive sin, that isn't the biblical view of God. He cannot forgive sin by the sheer force of his will because God is just. And justice, divine justice, will not allow that. And so, God put forth Jesus Christ precisely because he had been forgiving sin throughout the entire Old Testament period. I mean, as Paul put it here, he had passed over former sin. The patriarchs, right? Abraham, David, Moses. They got to go to heaven because God forgave their sin. And here we have this tension. How can that be? And the same problem of how could that be would remain now. How, How could God forgive us? and be just that would remain now if if he had not put Christ forward as the satisfaction for our sin too as long as justice was not satisfied for our sin God's own righteousness was in the dock on trial against his mercy And Jesus Christ is the resolution to that tension. When Christ took our sin upon himself, taking our unrighteous record upon himself, he satisfied God's justice on our behalf. As Westminster Shorter Catechism 25 states, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. When Christ went to the cross, when he did that, God looked upon that death as our death because Christ was dying in our place. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2, 20 and 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And those words ought to belong to each one of you too. And he concludes, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Sin stood in our way to heaven. And in God's way, of approving us in his divine courtroom. 
when the sinless Christ died, he died on account of our sin. Being identified with his people and taking their sin legally upon himself as his to pay for. That brings us to our final point. Satisfaction. Um, So we've been untangling this problem related to God's justice in connection with the forgiveness of our sin. And, and, And to pull our thoughts together in relation to the Apostles' Creed, we have been exploring the reason why Christ had to suffer under Pontius Pilate, be crucified, die, and be buried. We think often, rightly so, about the cross itself and how Christ's death and suffering provides significance, provides satisfaction, provides salvation. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to to dig into the the wider structures of the universe as God made it with the principles of justice built in that explain why we have to be so committed to, to this view of penal substitutionary atonement. This view that Christ bore the penalty, penal, the penalty for our sin as the substitute in our place. And I want to round out these reflections by thinking about the way, the way in which Christ fulfilled the requirements of God's justice. Um, I actually had twice as many things that I was going to put into this, so you'll, you can thank me afterwards for saving that for another time. Um, and so, so I want to get at one, one aspect of this, really. As we think about how, the, the way in which Christ fulfilled the requirements of divine justice. Righteousness, as we've seen, as we've thought about in the last two weeks, to kind of put it in, in new categories. Righteousness involves the categories of debt. Debt, D-E-B-T. In any debt situation, you have the principal debt, right? which in a loan, for example, in a loan is the base amount that you borrow. That's the principal debt. But you, you can then have accrued debt, which in a loan accumulates because of the interest compiling further compiling further debt on top of that principal amount so you have this principal debt that you owe kind of as the baseline and then other debt gets added to it right now by virtue of being made in god's image by virtue of being the divine image bearer we owed him the principal debt of perfect obedience. That's the principal debt. That was the baseline obligation. And on account of sin, we accrued the penalty debt, which is death. So 
you have two, two aspects now of what we owe God. A principal debt and a penalty debt. Obedience and death. And the thing is, we still owe the principal amount. Just because you accumulate uh, the accrued debt doesn't mean the principal goes away, right? That's how debt works. We still owe the principal amount of obedience, but have accrued a liability to the penalty. And Christ has satisfied both debts for us by living the perfect life in our place and by being crucified in our place. That is why we emphasize both the doing and the dying of Jesus as crucial in salvation. This is why Hebrews, to to sort of tie it into our loan illustration, right? This is why Hebrews 7 talks about Christ as the guarantor for his covenant people. By coming in our nature to act in our stead, he assumed all of our debts for us, paying everything we owed to be reconciled to God and to enjoy everlasting life with him in the new creation. When we say... Jesus paid it all, we mean it. He's the guarantor who has done away with all the debts that we had before the throne of God that we might be right with him and have entitlement on account of Jesus, but nonetheless have entitlement, the title, the deed, to entry into the new creation. As Revelation The end of Revelation puts it, the right to eat from the tree of life. It strikes me, um, as we think about the end of this, it strikes me that if we're paying attention to how the creed develops, everything so far has, if if you read it for the first time, no context, Everything so far has seemed pretty upbeat until you get to these lines about Jesus' sufferings. Now, we, of course, know our need for salvation, and we come to the creed with that assumption. But the creed itself begins outlining some amazing things just about who God is and what he's done. And even the description of the virgin birth as such, if you don't know why we need that, doesn't signal something's wrong, even though that we know that Christ came, born of the virgin, to save us from our predicament. But as we come to these lines, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, that he descended into hell, these lines show us that Christians have known since our most ancient days that something is not right with the world. We live an upside-down existence, broken by sin, alienated from God by our transgressions against his justice. We deal with the fallout of the fall every moment, of our lives. And the other side 
of these lines in the creed is that Christ has addressed these problems. As we live in the sin-stained, fallen, broken world, we know that Jesus came to deal with it. Jesus did not... There, there's a lot of sentimentality that, that people want to load into their doctrine of God and into the cross. But everything we've considered so far ought to show us that Jesus did not come to absorb suffering into the Godhead. He did not come just to let us know that God sympathizes with humanity's problems. Jesus came to defeat sin and death by taking our sin and its penalty, death, upon himself and doing away with it at the cross. Our records, our records of debt before God are satisfied. Our status is secure. Our debts are paid in full because Jesus has done it all and secured our place with him in glory. Let's pray. Father God, the world is not as it should be. The world is not as you made it. And the world is not as you commissioned us to keep and uphold it. We have damaged it. We have broken it. We have thrown it into sin. And all of the negative effects that accompany that. And yet, even though you are the just, the God who should have destroyed the unjust, you are merciful. And in Jesus Christ, made it, so that you could be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Dealing with our transgressions in the death of Jesus Christ. Dealing with all of our debts in the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ. That we might belong to you and nothing stand in the way of everlasting fellowship. Wherein we are accepted brought in as sons and daughters of the living God because Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, because he died, because he was hung on a tree, because he died, because he was put in the ground. Well, you can pull us from the ground raised in glory. Help us to marvel at who Jesus is. And that all of the fallout of the fall that we deal with in the week before us, Jesus has dealt with that as well. All of the tears of God's people will be wiped away at the last day. Every wrong will be made right. And we will see and know what it should be like to live in a just world again. Help us to long for that day, but help us to enjoy the moments that we have with you as we wait. We pray it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen.